chapter 33 this morning of Exodus. But in chapter 32, it's quite, quite a chapter because Moses has asked God, all the while knowing the goodness of God, Moses asked God to blot out his name from his book of life. And you almost have to read that a second time to, to understand the desperation that Moses is feeling. And he feels desperation for the people, for Israel. Moses is pleading. He's interceding. Uh, so desperately, he's willing to surrender his own eternal soul. I must confess, I haven't found anything that I'm willing to surrender my eternal soul for. And uh, maybe that makes me a poor leader. I don't know. But my soul is that one precious thing between God and myself. But we have all found ourselves in positions, in situations where we need God's mercy and grace, and we need him so desperately, we find ourselves saying things like, life is not worth living. Lord, I just can't go on this way. And if you ever found yourself in that position, then you understand in part the desperation Moses is feeling. But Moses is in that place with God only to a greater degree. Moses, in his intercession for the people, is not only willing to be accursed, and that's just mind-boggling to me, that he is, he is that loving of the people that he's willing to be accursed. If God will not forgive him, God, you've got to forgive these people. And to be willing to suffer eternal damnation, eternal separation from God, it's, like I said, it goes beyond what I'm able to understand. But Moses, he's offered all that he has, all that he will ever have, if God will only forgive Israel. That's a compassionate heart. That's a heart that is extremely bent towards the people, his brethren, Israel. The Apostle Paul is the only one that was ever able to even say the same type of thing and that he, you know, he was willing to be a curse for his Jewish brethren. But God is pleased by Moses' love and compassion and desperation for the people, his commitment to the people. But in the very next verse... God sets Moses straight. <laughs> and he says, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will determine whether or not he is blotted out of the book of life. And I determine who will receive forgiveness. Now, God is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sins, but forgiveness belongs to God, and we're to never lose sight of that. God will, in fact, punish, bring plagues upon Israel for their great sin around this golden calf. But God also refuses to blot Israel out of his book of life. He's not going to go there. In God's mercy and grace, 
is greater, is more superior than the sin, this great sin of Israel. And isn't that good to know that God's mercy and grace is greater than our ability to sin? And you people have good ability to sin. I I know I I break records there myself. (laughs) But as people that have experienced God's grace, it's good to know that we have his forgiveness, that he is greater than our sins. In chapter 33, we will now see Moses, and Moses has a great, an awesome desire, and that is for the very presence of God. So let's pick up in uh, chapter 33, Exodus, and we'll read the first six verses here, verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, and you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord... Uh, had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could not come up into your midst in one moment, and or in one moment I would consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. This could on a casual reading seem harsh that God will not go with Moses or the children of Israel. But in reality, God is showing great mercy and grace to Moses and to the children of Israel. And God is telling Moses that in my complete holiness, if I go up with you, I will consume you because you are a stiff-necked, rebellious people, and if I'm in your midst and I see this kind of sin, I will consume you. But God says, hey, but I will still provide for you. You will still have my blessings. But Moses says, Lord, I want you. I don't want your blessings. I want you. And what a good word for the church of today. Though there's a great move in the church today that they serve God because of what they get. Uh, The prosperity doctrine runs rampant through the church. And what is it? It's just what can I get from God? And Moses, he appreciates the benefits, but that isn't what he wants from God. He wants the presence of God. And God has declared to Moses, I will drive out the enemy from before you. Don't worry. But I can't go with you, Moses. The people, they've heard this solemn word of the Lord, and they go into mourning. 
No one put on a happy face. There is not joy or happiness in the camp, and no one adorned themselves with their jewelry and all this kind of thing. And then in verse 5, God now says, I have to decide what I'm going to do with you, the people of Israel. And then we have verses 7 through 11. And in verses 7 through 11, there's like a, a scenery change. We, we go to Act 2 that has almost nothing to do with Act 1 here. So let's read verses 7 through 11. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tabernacle meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood in his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to a friend. And he, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. In this passage, we find Moses taking his tent and removing it to the outskirts of the camp. And you wonder, well, why is Moses doing this? Maybe he is fearful for the people. Maybe Moses wants to be separate from the people where God will come and visit with him, descend in the cloud and speak with him. But we find Moses, as he goes through the camp, on his way to his tent, the temporary tabernacle of God, the people would stand in the doorway of their tent until Moses passed by. They would honor Moses because they knew he was God's man, uh, and then they would see the pillar of cloud of, of the glory of God, and it would descend over Moses' tent, and they knew that God was talking to their leader, Moses. This cloud was an awesome sight of the glory of God, and it brought about worship from the people. The people knew that their leader was in fellowship with God, and that caused the people to worship. Verse 11, God, it says God spoke to Moses face to face like a friend to a friend. This describes, actually, that there was dialogue between them, not monologue, but there was conversation that was going on between God and Moses. And we have a young man there, Joshua, and he's the future leader of Israel. And Joshua witnesses this relationship between Moses and God. And that was a good thing for Joshua to witness. Then we pick up verses 12 through 23, and we'll read those now. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, 
Show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he says, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And this is, uh, of course, a very uh, well-known passage of Moses desiring to see the face of God. But in verse 12, Moses will present his view, his opinion to God. And the thing is, God listens to him. <laughs> and Moses says, God, you've told me, bring up this people, but who are you going to send with me, God? This is a confession by Moses that he is not able to do on his own what God desires. And Moses, he goes on and he says, God, you have said, I know you by name and I have found grace in your sight. And then he says, but God, if I have found grace, show me the way. Show me how to do this. And then we have Moses really getting down to the crux of his whole uh, conversation with God. And he says, God, here it is. I want to know you. There it is. That's what Moses really desires. I want to know, God, that I have found grace in your sight, and I want to know that this nation, these people, are your people. And God has an answer for Moses in verse 14. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But Moses... He's being a typical Israeli, a typical Middle Easterner, and he's on a roll, and he can't stop, <laughs> and, he, and he's about to make his great request of God, and in his very Jewish way, Moses is attempting to coerce God into giving him his request. Lord, we, how will you know if we have found grace in your sight except that you go with us? That's a sign to Moses that God would go with him. This would be a sign that Moses has found grace. 
God says, Moses, I just told you my presence will go with you. I just spoke it to you. But God, we want to be a special people to you, separate from all other people. And by the way, as Christians, we are separate. We're God's people. He has chosen us. He has brought us into a relationship with himself. And we have that special place with our Lord. Verse 17, Moses, I will do this thing you've spoken of, for you have found grace in my sight. And by the way, Moses, I know you by name. That's a peculiar thing for us some to perhaps understand. But in the last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 4, Jesus declares, he says, we being his servants shall see his face and shall be, and his name shall be on our forehead. This indicates that by seeing the face of God, there is intimate knowledge of God and there is intimate fellowship with God. His name being on our forehead is not necessarily for our benefit, but it's for the benefit of others and for the benefit of God. He looks upon us as his servants, his people. He looks at us, that name, as being ownership of us. This is the longing of Moses that he wants to see the face of God. This comes from a man who knows what the glory of God is like. Don't forget the cloud, the cloud that descends upon Moses' tent, and God would speak to Moses face to face. And this cloud of glory, Moses is familiar with. Moses knows God. He knew him to the point that when when the cloud would come down, it would radiate Moses' face, and he would actually have to put on a veil to hide the glow of his own face. But we have Moses, who knows what it's like to talk to God face to face. He desires to see God face to face. Moses knows God intimately. Friend to friend, talks with God. But now Moses even wants to try to persuade God to allow him to see his face. Show me your glory, God. But Moses, you can't see God, because if you see God, you can't live to tell about it. <laughs> and I think that raises a great question. A great question for us. We have found God's grace. I don't think there's anyone in here that hasn't experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. But then the question comes, but do we seek the face of God? Is that our desire? Or are we content to know God from afar? Moses wasn't. Moses probably had one of the most intimate relationships with God of any man. And yet he says, God, I want to see your face. You might say to me, well, 
Pastor Don, I don't have any desire to die, so I don't want to see God's face. But the answer to this dilemma is Jesus declared in John, uh, the Gospel of John, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, rather, No one has seen the face of God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And then in chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the religious leaders. And he says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his face. Being a religious leader in that day or even today doesn't give you the privilege of knowing or seeing God any more than it gives anyone that privilege. As disciples, as followers of Christ, we are his special people. You and I, Christians, are a special people of God, and it's good for us to know and understand we have found grace. You want to relish in that grace. But I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. And, well, turn there and we'll, we'll go through some verses. Hear what Jesus had to say about some things. John 14, verses, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 here. Jesus speaking, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 5, we have Thomas doing what we would call a timeout in sports. Hold on, God. <laughs> or hold on, Jesus. Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Verse 6, notice the singularity in Jesus' reply. Jesus is not one of the ways of to eternal life, not one of the ways to a relationship with the Father. It says Jesus is the singular way. Jesus is the singular truth. Jesus is the singular life. The road to heaven just got real narrow. It's strictly through Jesus. Every now and again, I will come upon a person who really doesn't know my Lord, and, and they will try to, to comfort me, I guess, by saying that Jesus was a great teacher, or perhaps he was even a great prophet, definitely a man ahead of his time, and I will usually say something along the lines of, hey, Jesus was either a liar or he is the only way to a relationship with God the Father. 
For Jesus openly declares he is the way, the truth, the life, period. You can't get around that. Jesus is either lying to us or he is what he said he is. And I'm so glad he is truth. We have Thomas and Philip here, plus the other disciples who lived with Jesus three and a half years, walked with him, ate with him. But now Jesus' words forces them to reconcile in their own hearts and lives. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. <laughs> Don't you like that? <laughs> Good job, Philip. But anyway, Philip is not completely satisfied with the words of Jesus. Show us the Father. Lord, or Rabbi, teacher, you show us the Father, and that will be sufficient for us. And then we have, in verses 9 through 11, what we call a gentle rebuke of Jesus to Philip. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. <clears throat> so we went from words to work right there. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus asked Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Moses, who lived basically 1,500 years before Messiah came, before Jesus came in the flesh, Moses can say, show us your face, God. But not the disciples, not the ones that walk with Jesus every day for three and a half years. And you and I can't say it either or any other person that has found grace in Jesus. You're not allowed to say, show us the Father. Believe, disciples. Believe, saints of today. We are to trust in, rely upon the words of Jesus. And if you find yourself like Philip, that Jesus' words aren't enough, then believe Jesus for his works. That's what he told Philip. You believe me for my works, Philip. And you know the gospel, all four of them are full of the miracles of Jesus. They are full of his works. John will declare in later in his gospel that if everything that Jesus did were to be recorded, written down, and put in books, the world could not hold the volume of the books that would be written about the works of Jesus. 
So to that person, to the Phillips of this world, I say, study the Gospels. Get to know your Lord. There's no disappointment in Jesus. He is everything he declared he is. But that's what we have to do. We have to be believing. And we don't have to be believing in the dark. We can study. We can see that Jesus is everything he claims to be. My daughter, who's in her mid-30s now, when she was around 14 or 15 years old, she would pray and she would pray to Jesus. Me, her dad, wanting to correct her theology, <laughs> I went through this long, laborious explanation and ordeal, explaining to her that we pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus, and, uh, and I went through this ordeal with her, basically telling her, when you pray to God, pray in the name of Jesus, and that's how you're supposed to do it, dear. I get all said and done with this, and she said to me, Dad, is it okay if I pray to Jesus? I said, yeah. <laughs> you go ahead. You pray to Jesus. That's fine, and Dad will adjust his theology. Know your Lord, and if his words are too difficult for you, then study his works, for his works only speak of everything he did for us. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand, and we'll close in prayer. Uh, some of you may or may not know Lucy Quinn fell this week, fell on her shoulder that she had surgery on a couple months back, and she broke the same shoulder again. And she's in a lot of pain, but I want us to remember Lucy in prayer, so just agree with me in prayer. Father God, uh, first of all, we want your words to have that place in our heart. Lord, we don't want to be uh, foolish or stubborn. We don't want to have to look to your works, although your works testify of you, Lord. We want to be accepting, believing your word because you speak truth to us. So first of all, do a good work in our hearts, Lord. Cause us, your people, to be a people that believe with a whole and complete heart. Help us that way, Lord. But Lord, uh, Lucy's suffering this morning, and from what I understand, her pain is quite severe. So Lord, we ask you to touch Lucy's body. We ask you to mend her, to heal her, Lord. We ask you to come alongside of her, and not only just touch her for the pain's sake, but to, to just... Be there with her to comfort her, Lord. And be with Art, too, as he uh, tries to uh, help Lucy in any way he can. Just help them through this difficult time, Lord. And uh, so be with them. And, Lord, we want to be praying for one another and lifting each other up in prayer. But we ask you to, in particular, be with Lucy this morning in, in this pain that she's going through, Lord.
Touch your body. Be her healer. And we pray for these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're